Welcome to the Unified Brand Podcast, brought to you by Elements Brand Management, a weekly brand building and brand strategy podcast to help you unlock your brand's potential, stand out from the competition, and create impact. So today we're joined by Melina Palmer, globally celebrated keynote speaker and CEO of The Brainy Business, helping great brands and the people within them do greater things by leveraging the power of behavior economics. He's also the host of the podcast, The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy, which has been downloaded in over 170 countries worldwide. And you're also an author of uh, two books, one called What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, and the other one being What Your Customers Want and Can't Tell You. Great to have you on the Unified Brand Podcast, Melina. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do, and a brief introduction for anyone listening that isn't familiar with what behavioral economics is? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to be on the show. So I am an applied behavioral economist, which is kind of in this intersection of psychology and like you said, why people buy, right? And so I have worked on incorporating that into helping customers to buy and employees to buy in. And really the problem and reason why we need behavioral economics is because people don't tend to do what we think they should Even when someone will say, oh, I know I want to buy that thing or, oh, yeah, if you put baking soda in your toothpaste, I will absolutely buy it. And then they don't. And it's not typically because they're intentionally lying. Our brains just don't work the way that we think they should. And so what behavioral economics does is allows us to communicate with how the brain actually makes decisions instead of, you know, living in the shoulds. Wow. Okay. So how did you get into behavior economics and uh, what is the things, what are you passionate about within that sort of field? My undergraduate degree is in marketing and business administration. And when I was going through school with that, there was one section of one book of one little tiny tidbit that was talking about buying psychology and why people did the things they did. And I thought it was just amazing and fascinating and that I, you know, had never really thought about doing additional schooling until that moment. I said, I'm going to go back. I'm going to get a master's in this. I thought it was so cool. And I spent 10 years calling universities around the country and saying, hey, I'm looking for a program like this. And they said, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. So sorry (laughs) about that. So I was kind of bummed about it, but was working in industry and running a marketing department. And so when I was part of this program, that's kind of like a innovation fellowship for people in financial institutions. They brought in some people from what's called the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is their behavioral economics area underneath uh, Dan Ariely. So for anyone who's familiar with behavioral economics or behavioral science, you probably heard that name. And they were talking about the work they were doing, the research they had done. And I realized that this was the thing I had been spending at this point a decade searching for. And they said it was called behavioral economics. And as a marketer, I said, really? Like, are you sure? It's like over, it lives here. It's not econ, right? But I was convinced and I went back and found myself a master's program and jumped right in. And when I started it, what I, I knew I was early into the field because Obviously, I had spent a lot of time looking for it, and it was a field that didn't exist. But I didn't realize on the applied side just how early I was. So all the things that seemed so obvious to me about how you apply this to brand strategy, to communication, to pricing, and things within companies was just nowhere to be found in the books and the articles and research that existed throughout my master's program. 
And I mean, that's where I think there's so much value. Of course, the academic side matters, but this applied stuff I thought was pretty darn cool. And so had that, you know, why not me moment and uh, started the podcast and again, didn't realize it was the first of its kind in the world, which led to it being much more than I ever expected it to be in a really cool way. And that's, you know, led to books and consulting and teaching and all sorts of good stuff. Wow, that's amazing. That's really cool. So it must have been really exciting in sort of those early days. I mean, still even now, but the early days when you were kind of, like you said, applying it where no one else was. And what were some of the things you learned early on and what were some of the insights that you took away from those sort of the early, early days with working with it? I think the biggest piece is just, I start everything, when I'm ever working with anybody, what we ever talk about is the, this is how the brain really works, right? And it's not what we think it is. <laughs> and it's not how we would like to think our brains work. And I use the terms of conscious and subconscious because it's easier for people. But when you think about decisions, right? So like how many decisions you make in a day or how many decisions you made yesterday, right? As an example, what can you remember? And we can have our, you know, audience maybe try to guess for themselves. I don't know if you want to actually make a guess as to how many decisions you make in a day. I'd say somewhere between 30 and 50. Yeah, right? Like, I mean, we make some decisions, right? And so what research has found is that the average person makes 35,000 decisions every single day. Wow. Remotely conscious. So that's not a breathe in and breathe out. Those are like actual decisions that we're making. So the brain really works in these micro moments, these little tidbits. And so that's where the brain is actually very nudgeable and the subconscious has to make the bulk of those decisions. The reason, you know, we say often I'll do this and people will be like, I don't know, two, right? <laughs> like how many decisions did I make? <laughs> and you don't even remember so many of them. And it's because you weren't consciously making a lot of those choices. So what the subconscious does is really running a lot of the show. I like to think about it like a gatekeeper or a receptionist. If you're trying to get a meeting with a busy executive, it's got rules and saying like, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. And it wants to hold on to as much as it can, because when the executive gets involved, things really slow down. You know, we hit the bottom of the funnel there and you're like, ugh, right? So subconscious is wanting to make as many decisions as it can, but relies on predictability and the status quo. It likes familiarity. It likes to know what's coming and apply a rule that it thinks will work. So all the decisions that we make are based on what has worked before, not what will work in the future. It obviously does pretty well for us, right? We do well, but once you understand that, right? That our brains are really rooted in keeping things as they are as much as possible and being in that like, you know, static state, makes it so clear how it can be, what we say hard to get people to change or, you know, getting people to buy something new is difficult or whatever. It doesn't have to be that way if you understand and can work with other rules that the brain is already using to make decisions. And so that's what behavioral economics does. And in my books and the podcast and trainings and things that I do is just helping to make it relatable to people so they can find what they need to know to best apply this into their work to be able to be more successful and brain friendly. Yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, I, I can understand if you've got 5,000 decisions to make, why the subconscious would need to take over and kind of just deal with those and also it's almost like that first kind of automation in a way it's kind of like the core of what automation is so it's kind of you're automating and if you can't do that like you said it goes to the chief exec kind of rather than the receptionist kind of thing so 
That's really interesting. So how does that connect then with, like you said, if people are so used to the status quo, not changing the status quo, the balance that's involved, how does behavioral economics start to transition people from the status quo to somewhere different if you're selling a product or you're marketing? Well, the thing to note is, again, with change and stuff, we change all the time. We don't necessarily recognize or think about it, but you know, everyone that has a smartphone today, you didn't used to have one. And if you think about when you moved into your house, wherever you live now, it's not like your silverware grows in the drawer that it's in, right? You chose to put it there and it was something different in the last place that you lived, right? We are adapting and changing continually. And there are rules that we use, again, that are pretty consistent in the way that we make decisions. So what your customer wants and can't tell you, I use 16 of what I think are the most important kind of first concepts for someone to use in business if they're looking to apply behavioral economics. The first of them is framing. And this is that how you say something matters more than what you are saying. And so finding the way to communicate, you can say the exact same thing two different ways and it feels very, very different. So an example of this would be to imagine you need to go to the grocery store, uh, pick up some hamburger, spaghetti night, whatever. And you get there, there are two stacks almost identical. The only difference is that one is listed as 90% fat-free and the other is labeled as 10% fat. So which one feels appealing? Which one do we want to buy? Around the world, thousands of people I've given this in a presentation to, and everyone pretty overwhelmingly says 90% fat-free is the one that they want, right? Feels a lot better. Logically, we know it's the same, and I'm still going to pick this one, (laughs) Mm. right? And so when you look and say, you know, if people aren't buying what you're selling, even if they're complaining and saying the price is too high or whatever it is, it might not be that the price is wrong. It might not be that the product is wrong. It might not be that your company is wrong. You're just maybe talking about it in 10% fat terms instead of that 90% fat free. And so finding a way you can flip the frame to make it so it's a little bit more compelling is something that's really easy to do. Three kind of main ways that I always recommend for people to look at this. First would be looking at if versus when. So we say if a lot, right? If you have questions, let me know. If you're interested, here's my number, if, if, if. But that doesn't really compel much action. So if instead, if you say when, when you're ready, here's the next step. When you have a question, I'm here and happy to help you or whatever it is. When implies that action and that something is going to happen next. And so it's a slight shift and you're not going to change every if in the world to a when, but understanding that tiny tweak is a, a way that can make a difference. The second one is to go from anyone to everyone. So we're a herding species. We feel safe when we know that other people like us are doing the same things, especially if it's a choice we're not familiar with. This is why things like testimonials and star ratings and reviews can help us to make a decision to buy something we haven't gotten before because we feel safe with what the herd has already done. So we have a tendency to say, you know, for anyone who's interested, hey, I'm over here, right? Anybody, are you out there, right? But Everyone is much more compelling because for everyone that's ready, here's your next step, 
right? So when I have a guest on my podcast, I don't say, you know, if anyone wants a copy of Chris's book, here's how you get it, right? I say, for everyone who's so excited when you're ready to pick up your copy, there's a link in the show notes. Slight tweak, but it makes a difference. The third thing is to really leverage the power of the question mark instead of the statement. Our brains are really compelled to answer questions. And when we have that kind of curiosity gap, we want to kind of close the loop on whatever's there. So if you're getting ghosted in sales emails a lot, check and see if you're ending on a statement, right? And a lot of them end on the, if you have questions, let me know. If you need something, here I am. But if instead you say, you know, here are some times, you know, limit it to a couple choices, which of those is best for you? I feel like I wanna close the loop there if I'm the person reading. And if you just need the next action, which might be, hey, I actually can't do any of those, but Tuesday will work, right? People feel compelled to take that next step or saying, hey, what did I miss here? Did I forget something? You know, did I leave something open-ended? What more do you need from me? Putting it as a question will make it so someone's more likely to respond and take that next step. So those are three simple reframes that can help with any sort of selling or pitching. Well, it's amazing how just by changing a couple of the words in those sentences, how different they make you feel. How kind of more, like you said, more action you want to take, how it reframe, it changes what you're actually saying. That's really interesting what you said about the everyone as opposed to anyone, because I definitely do that quite a lot. So to change that, <laughs> and also I'm primed now and ready for when I uh, introduce your book later on, use everyone. Uh so that's always good. But um, yeah, so on the side of that, so what do you see businesses, some of the big mistakes businesses make when it comes to sort of their product marketing that behavior economics can solve? So what's some of the things they people do repeatedly wrong? So there's a few things you said there in the previous reframing, but is there anything else that comes up quite a bit? Yeah, uh, funny enough. So episode two of the Brainy Business Podcast is called the top five wording mistakes businesses make. So that's a good one to go check out for anyone that wants to you know, kind of start there. And making things difficult is a big thing that people do. They inadvertently make it hard to do something, right? So where I say it's episode two, you can go to thebrainybusiness.com slash two and you can find it, right? Any of the episodes you can find by their number. So it makes it easy. A couple of the things that we tend to do, you make it way too vague of what you're wanting someone to do. We tend to think, oh, people could do anything. There's so much opportunity out here. I can help everyone. Anyone could get value out of what I'm doing. And so we get a little bit murky. But when we can't see ourselves in the story and the solving and what's there and we can't really relate, it's hard to make a decision. And so when you have the value be too vague or have too many journeys that aren't clearly defined can make it so it's hard for someone to make a decision. Along that line, one of the other really big things is, you know, too much. So if you ever have to ask, are there too many words on my website? Are there too many words in this article? Are there too many words in this ad? Are there too many words on whatever? I can tell you right now, the answer is yes. There are too many. <laughs> if you're asking the question, you can cut it down. And one of the things I really advise people to do is to look for what's the least amount that you can say to get someone to the decision and to make the decision and keep yourself from going beyond that. It's good to have answers if they do have follow-up questions, but making it simpler for people, making it more clear and being able to showcase proper herding to make it so it's like 
more people like you are doing this thing and this is the right journey and now is the right time to buy. Are you ready to go? Makes it a lot easier for them to make that choice than if it's just vague and lots and lots of text that you don't know what you're supposed to do next. Yeah, I guess it's easy to overthink and to overanalyze and to put too much in. And it's sort of, I guess it's to do with almost the fear response. You kind of want to cram everything in to get across what you want to get across. But yeah, like you said, it, the more complicated you are, the less you're going to get across what you're trying to get across. So yeah, it makes total sense. So with that, what would be your process of working with a company that has too much of something like that? How do you go about reducing it and simplifying it? Yeah. So really the biggest mistake that I see businesses make along these lines is not understanding the problem you're really trying to solve, not knowing the behavior you need to change. We're really conditioned to jump into solving a problem in the way that we first saw it or how it was introduced to us. And a lot of that is because we were trained in school about, you know, here's the question. There's like, this is the problem. There's a solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. But really, it's super easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. And you can waste a lot of time solving problems that aren't going to move the needle for you. It's a lot of busy work. It's expensive. And it's just, you know, if you're making Band-Aids for bacterial infections, meh, right? It's not going to do what you want it to do. And so taking more time to invest in understanding what the real problem is, is where I really love to help companies to understand what it is they're doing. Once you understand that, you can see what the behaviors are. You know, where do you want people to go? What they need to do to get there? What's keeping them from getting there? What's their current status quo? And where can we nudge them along the way? The least amount of points to get from A to B. I mean, that's that's really, then we can look at the behavioral levers that you pull, but you have to understand the real problem to help motivate that action. How do you identify the behaviors that are driving them through that process, the journey, and, and also, like you said, behavioral levers? How do you reduce the friction? So how do you identify these behaviors and reduce the friction in that process? This, of course, is the thing that all my students and clients, you know, get the in the attorney style answer of always, it depends. <laughs> it's like, I need a mug that says yeah. it depends or a t-shirt or something because it's definitely my catchphrase. But, and it truly does, and context is super key to that. But taking something, one of my very favorite examples, and I was not a part of this project, but it's a company called The Literary. And what they have done is they've decided that they're gonna help people to properly throw away and sort their garbage every single time. So if I told you that was your new job and you can't do anything else until you've completed this, feeling good about yeah. your new job or you feel like, you know, Sisyphean to the nth degree, right? Like we're never yeah. getting there. So even if that's the case, you know, you decide you're going to rally, you're excited, you're going to get passionate, you're going to make it happen. What would you do? What do you think the problem is? You probably think that people are confused. Like what's compost? What's recycling these days? There's too many things they don't understand. We need a brochure. We need an explainer video. We need facts about how big Garbage Island is. We need pictures of turtles with straws in their noses, or we need a Kardashian or something to go explain why this matters. But that hasn't worked for a really, really long time, right? That's this logical point of trying to say, this is what should motivate people. And often in our companies, the thing that we get excited about, about why we want to do something, we think that people need to care about it in the same way that we do to take the action we want them to take. But really, that's the wrong approach. And so in the case of the literary, what they have done 
is they turn litter into lottery tickets and hence the name. And so they have gone and invented these smart garbage cans that when you put something in, it can tell that you put a bottle in the recycling or you put a bottle in the trash or whatever else. And it will say like, hey, good job, Melina. You recycled that bottle, you're entered into the lottery. Or it will say, sorry, you know, bottles go in the recycling, make sure to do that next time. Or like, hey, that's a rock. You get nothing, nice try, right? You don't get anything for this. They tested across movie theaters, four of them for 30 days and had 100% compliance. They didn't have to explain what anyone needed to do. People knew what to do, but they needed to be properly motivated. And in this case, it's super selfish, right? Like I could win. And in the movie theater example, it was 500 euro was the prize, only 500 euro. But again, like, okay, I put the bucket in the trash. I could win 500 bucks, like, yes. It's very easy to take the action there. And they had people running through the aisles looking for garbage after. They had women rifling through their bags to see if they had extra tissues to throw away. People knew what to do. And focusing on this other way that can motivate them, we also love a lottery because we have optimism bias and some of these other things. And so stepping back and saying, do I care that they care for the reason I want them to care? Do I care that they're passionate about the planet and about saving the earth? Do I just want the bottle in the recycling bin? at the end of the day. And if you only get one, and you typically do, which do you want? That yeah. process of stepping that far enough back from our own companies is very difficult, which is why you know consultants like myself can really help to tease it out. But there are a lot of questions you have to ask. I take clients through a process of question storming instead of brainstorming to help to identify those real problems. And with something like the literary, you know, a question like, how do we make litter valuable? Or what makes people excited to take an action instead of saying like, oh, it's a pain, they're confused, it's no fun, whatever. You know, today, if you walk down the street and you see a bottle, you may think, ugh, some people, they're so gross, I would never do that. But you walk right by it. You don't pick it up, most people, and recycle it, right? If you are walking down the street and you see it and you think, I could win a million dollars if I go recycle this thing, Hooray, it's a lottery ticket, right? It's exciting to go throw it away. You're gonna pick up the bottle, even if it was trash someone else left. And that can help move the needle, even though it's for a purely selfish reason. That is absolutely amazing. And I was gonna say to you, because when you were describing it then, it sounds like we talked about behaviors earlier on and kind of that journey process. So is, is would you say the purpose of a really good brand or a good business is to help to, I wouldn't still use the word train, but kind of, habituate your audience or your and on the flip side your employees to develop those instincts and that kind of culture does that make sense is that the kind of thing that if you do it well enough you can start to do that yeah i mean so those thirty-five thousand decisions you know we're making those choices based on habits right habits and bias that's how we make choices and so understanding the rules is helpful in getting to where you can become the habit and working with and understanding habits. In the case of employees, you know, what I talk about there is understanding change is not the big stuff only, the thing that requires a project management team and a big spreadsheet of which things like tell the team, get one item on your very long to-do list, but really decisions again in those micro moments, those little snowflakes, you need to be thinking about change. And my argument is that 
any conversation, any interaction is one of change. You're either in the, you know, wake of changes that have happened already, you're in the midst of a change, or you're preparing for changes yet to come. And you're needing to lay the right groundwork. And something as simple as a bad subject line on an email can derail so much in getting people to be on board with a change. In the same way that if a brand missteps or has a mistake, it can really impact them in a way that is difficult for a lot of people to overcome. But the difference between a business and a brand is how we associate to brands. I really love a quote from Peter Seidel that brands are memories. And really that is true. It's a building block of all these interaction points that come into how we see a brand. And when you have a favorite brand, if they mess up a little bit, we still, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt, right? If so, if Disney has a bad movie, it's not like all of Disney is terrible, right? Because we have this affinity and nostalgia and love of Disney. Whereas if a brand new, you know, we're testing something out for the first time and it's bad, well, we think everything they're going to do is bad and we'll write them off forever. So consistent experiences and how you incorporate things like surprise and delight, and like you said, habits and ongoing little moments with those clients or customers or members, whatever it is that you have, are really important as you consider experiences and journeys and getting people to be continually thinking of and choosing you. Yeah, definitely. Now that's really interesting. I think on that, I like the idea of I love the quote you just shared, by the way, about the brand. And I think it is, it's really, whenever I try and describe brand to clients, I always talk about the idea of if you remember a friend, mm-hmm. and if you have that, initially you'll see the vision, like you probably picture them in your mind's eye, but then you start to remember those mental movies, those memories you had with them. Maybe you'll hear their voice, those kind of things that are all part of that presence, which I think is kind of similar to what you said about the brand idea is kind of, it's all those touch points intermingled into one and the emotions you have with them. Yeah. Well, and how many companies, especially like you say it, when you're just getting started or you're, you know, having to grow a business, whether it's, you know, fintech or anything else, you're just kind of making it happen. You have get siloed departments and the voice in the advertisement is different than what you have on the front line of people that are talking to actual customers, which is very different from what people get on the website, which is different from your social media presence. And like this whole mix feels wrong to people, right? We want that cohesiveness of you are you everywhere and I feel comfortable. We pick up on those nuances of like, "Mm, that's weird. Like, that's not what I expected from you. And someone's not gonna say, well, you know, I expected your personality to be this based on that because of blah, 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 right? They don't explain it in that way. They just say, I don't like that. I I don't feel good about that. My gut told me, that this company is not for me or whatever it is, or I need more time to make a decision because you've overwhelmed them with too much information. They can't explain what's going on. One of the things I didn't really mention that subconscious and conscious don't speak the same language. So it really is two separate entities. And if we ask logical questions of like, well, why did you buy that? Or why were you interested in this? Why did you click on that? The conscious is trying to explain a decision that the subconscious made using rules that it doesn't know about. And so it's really hard to get people to tell you, there's a reason that the books end with and can't tell you, right? And it's not because they don't want to, because people really don't know why 
they do the things they do. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about subconscious and the conscious mind and how like similarly like the decisions, the choices you make start in the subconscious and how, like you said, it's two different languages. Almost you're speaking from an emotional perspective, potentially, and then the logical side of things. But yeah, so with the books, where did the inspiration come to write them? Why did you write them? And what were you hoping to achieve with each of them? And for everyone that wants to get a copy of the books, I'll put the links in the show notes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, with the podcast, which, you know, at the time we're recording this, it's very close to episode 305 years of the show, which is pretty exciting. So it's been around for quite some time. And, you know, I have people from all over the world that will reach out and say how much they love the show, the value they get from the insights and things like that. And, you know, thanks for explaining concepts. And I hear you talk about it and I get it, right? Like I'm in, I know I want to do it, but I don't know where to start. Like, how do I do that myself is really a question that I got a lot. And while the podcast does that, and I can do that, you know, as a consultant, not everybody is going to hire me. And having the books was my closest step to, if you're going to take this and apply and start using it yourself, this is a framework for you to be using. These are some concepts. You know, there are hundreds of rules the brain is using to make decisions. And you don't need to know them all. And you don't have to go become, you know, an academic researcher to be able to apply behavioral economics. For me, I really want people in small businesses, small to midsize, to have this information so they can go use it and be competitive because the big guys that you're competing against are hiring consultants like myself. They're creating nudge units and behavioral teams inside their organizations. So you need to be able to understand how to compete with how people really think and make choices. And so the books, you know, the first one, what your customer wants and can't tell you is really from that like brand strategy, thinking about how you communicate, you know, getting customers to buy is that first one. And then the what your employees need and can't tell you then came from seeing uh, teach a course on this and change management and being more influential. We need people to buy in on whatever idea we're pitching, whether that's getting investor funding or you're trying to get an employee to adopt a new system or to get budget <laughs> or something or to get a new team member, even when there's not that money exchanging hands. And so understanding influence and how to present information to make it so people are more likely to naturally want to go along with whatever it is you're suggesting, whether they report to you or not, is the point of that, what your employees need and can't tell you. And that book came out in October of 2022. So I got the green light at the end of 21 and where you got the fight quitting and all these things, great resignation and stuff happening. I just knew that it was a book that the world really needed to help people have a great experience at work. And while you know, it's not out yet, but The Truth About Pricing is book three and it's scheduled to come out in early 24. Wow, cool. Could you give us a little bit of insight into that book and what's going to be in it and what are some of the things that you look at with regards to pricing? Yeah. So with pricing, I actually use the same framework for change as I do for pricing. Uh, here's the secret. Here's the truth. You know, pricing's not about the price. <laughs> it really isn't. All the things that happen before the price, that behavioral science, matter more than the price itself. And so understanding my framework is called It's Not About the Cookie. And so it incorporates framing, like we've talked about, as well as reciprocity, scarcity, herding, and social proof, priming. These 
factors to be able to come in and think about them in a way that can then help you to take that next action. So the truth about pricing is pricing is the thing that people need help with the most. I find it's where people get really stuck. They get really in their own head. And anytime you try to go find advice or insights into this, it's more confusing than it is helpful typically. And it can be weighty and stressful. And then you just spend a lot of time debating, end up just picking a price out of the air because by the time you have to make a choice, you just look at what your competitor's doing and decide to be a dollar less or whatever it is, right? And I don't want that for people. I want you to have that pricing confidence because when you're confident in the pricing, it also makes it more likely people are going to buy. And so understanding how to make those decisions and this book is really set up. It's shorter than the other two and it's intended to be as close to a just do it for me. Tell me what I need to do book that you can just be quickly applying as I could get. Oh, so it's interesting with the price side of things. You said there, it's not the price. So the price doesn't matter in terms of as long as you've got the, you've done the work beforehand with regards to framing and setting things up for that price to be delivered. So what are some things that people can look at in terms of the price that they can sort of change and adjust to have that impact? Because like, if you think about, yeah, Mercedes, people don't bat an eyelid with regards to paying for a Mercedes for what it's worth but they will haggle on a second-hand car to get the second-hand car. So what's kind of going on there and how does that relate to pricing and how it's perceived by us? Yeah, uh, there's obviously a lot more there than we could cover today, but you know, that brand piece is a big piece of it for one. It also has to do with the way that it's messaged and how you pull the different levers that we were talking about, right? And so in the book, one of the examples I give is of a grilled cheese sandwich and most people, even if you can't cook anything, you can probably, you know, make your way through a grilled cheese, right? And it costs like a dollar, maybe, you know, of what it would take to make it. And, you know, but if you were going to go out, you decide you're going to buy a grilled cheese, how much would you pay for one? And for most people, you know, maybe $5, it feels you know extreme. Or even yeah. if you go high end, right? Like if you were to think of the most like extreme, I'm going to buy a grilled cheese, what would you think that a company could charge or that you'd pay for, for one? Yeah, so if it was kind of a, a high-end sort of restaurant cafe for lunchtime, you'd be thinking, yeah, $10, maybe something like that, maybe even a little bit more, depending on what's with it. Yeah, right? Like, I mean, what could it possibly be? Well, <laughs> there is a restaurant in New York, it's called Serendipity 3, and they have a grilled cheese sandwich on their menu for $214. Oh. And people buy it. They also have $200 French fries. So they have Guinness World Records for some of these high-end items. And it's not, yes, it's a PR thing. And who cares, right? Because it also, you know, like, well, I'm not going to buy the $214 grilled cheese, but that $35 sandwich, like I'm, you know, part of this, right? I get to say I ate there. I was a part of this experience. And those $200 French fries, they came out with them when the pandemic was ending to say, hey, we're open again, right? So when they were able to first open and the wait list to get them, because you have to pre-order in advance for any of their deluxe, their cheeseburger, the French fries, the grilled cheese, their thousand dollar vanilla sundae, you have to order in advance. Wow. The wait list for the fries was eight to 10 weeks long for $200 French fries, right? So those same people, right? It's about this experience. It's about how they explain it. It's about these great ingredients, but also think about what that does. Like I said, for the rest of the brand, you want to go try something else and take the 
picture to show you were here and to, you know, increase their social proof. And then people hurting want to follow in and be part of that movement. We have a fear of missing out. That's some loss aversion that comes into play. Like all these things factor in. They also use a concept of anchoring, which is that high number. So the, like I said, the $200 grilled cheese makes it so the $30 sandwich doesn't feel so expensive, right? There's a lot of really interesting things they're doing. They all work together to support that really strong brand and what they're about, just really smart decisions that they make. And, you know, similarly, Louis Vuitton won't go on sale. And it would be really weird if they did, but other companies feel like they have to. Or even looking at something like Supreme and the brick, the Supreme brick that sold for $1,000 for an actual brick on the, the resale market. Um, and the Irex, like the thing that you can buy for $5, you get their version for $25 because it has a little Supreme logo on it. It's super weird. But this is the like, what your customer wants and can't tell you, you can charge whatever you want for things as long as it aligns with overarching brand strategy. Yeah, I mean, you were saying about the grilled cheese and the fries. I'm automatically thinking, well, they've got to be the best in the world. You know, that's the thing. I know. And- think that. And I've never seen them, never tried them or anything. It's just straight away. Right. And then if you were on a trip to New York right now that you know about it and the family's going, you're on the vacation, like, let's do this like outlandish. Let's go get these $200 fries because we got to try them. And then you're not going to not tell people about it. And because the brain gets what it expects, if you expect them to be the most amazing fries and they're not, you know, garbage, when you're eating them, it's like, ooh, yeah, I taste the hints of the truffle or whatever it is that they say is in there. And the grilled cheese has gold leaf and things on it. But again, if we think about framing, right? And so if it's like, hey, there's hunks of metal in the bread, you're like, ugh. Like gross, right? But this, you know, 23 karat gold, you know, flex in the crust, it feels very different. It's made with Dom Perignon champagne and whatever it is to create all that. And so it feels very exciting because of the framing, those priming words, the all that comes together to make you feel like you really want to try it. Yeah, definitely. And like <laughs> you said, with the sandwich kind of side of things, that being that sort of a lot more than the sandwich of being in all place, but in comparison to that, with that anchoring, like you said, it makes a, a huge difference. And there was something you said as well, which was almost timing based as well, that the end of the pandemic and coming out with it just then, when everybody had kind of not been able to eat out as well. So the timing of it was really clever in terms of when they delivered it. Yeah. Well, and that was just, again, the fries, you know, but the, really good with that. The grilled cheese and the burger and the sundae have been around a lot longer than that. But them understanding timeliness and the right moment for what people might want and need a little something, right? You have to be thoughtful to what's happening in the world around you, what people are looking for, what mindset they're in, what they've been doing again, what you want them to do and where they are and how you can nudge them along the way. So this awareness of what's happening in the world around you is really, really important for any sort of brand and even things that don't feel like they should be related like travel to Norway went up like 70% or some huge amount in 2014 and they realized that it was because of a movie afterwards they found out there was a movie that made this travel go up you have a guess 2014 I'm trying to think oh yeah was it the Northern Lights was it that one no 
I always think it's funny. I have people guess hostile, which is like, ugh, like why are then people wanting to go for that? But no, it's oh, not really? that either. Right. It was Frozen. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, I've got two daughters that love Frozen. <laughs> like, they're one of their favorite films. I should have got that one. But it's not actually set there. It's a cartoon, right? Like, and the, I forget the name of the place where they live. Uh, My Arundel. daughter would be. Arendelle. I was thinking, so Rivendell was what came up. I'm like, that's Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Rings. This yeah. is wrong. I know that, but I couldn't think. And then I thought Arendelle, but anyway. And I didn't want to look dumb, so here we go. But, you know, it's not actually in Norway, but it's inspired by it. And that people were actually, like, writing on custom cards, you know, when they're traveling. Like, why are you coming to Norway? It's like, well, little Susie really loves Olaf, so... Here we go. Right. That's crazy. But for Frozen, like knowing that that is something that could have happened, you know, for the country of Norway, is there something they could have done differently to help boost that even more that people are going to want to come here because Disney made this amazing movie, right? That they could have done something if they had an awareness of what was happening in that world around them. Like sales of Mars bars went way up when the first Mars rover was landing, which wow. again, dumb, <laughs> but our brains do that all the time. So. Well, you say that, but I've got a hankering for grilled cheese now. That's the thing. I'm I know, go. right? So, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. So, it's been really good to have you on, and it's been awesome to talk to you. I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Like, where can people find out more about yourself, the books, the podcast? And for everyone that wants to sort of engage with you further, where can they find you? Oh, thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate it. And for everyone who is very excited to learn more, you can go to thebrainybusiness.com and find the books and the podcast and consulting and all that. And special for your listeners, Chris, we have that anyone that you know wants to do a little try before you buy, you think you're excited, you can go get the first chapter of any of my books for free as those come out at thebrainybusiness.com slash unified. You can go and get those first chapters, see if it is a fit for you. And then for anyone who wants to connect on social media, you can find me as The Brainy Biz pretty much everywhere and as Melina Palmer on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks very much. I'll put the links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. It'd be good to do a follow-up. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime.